I've spent a lot of time speaking to people in different fields who, who you know, work in service or work in retail. And I think the beauty that I learn is that, you know, underneath it all, we're all people. And we all want to feel important and we all want to have chances to grow and we all want to be heard and seen. And, and some are more triggered by super clear goals and others aren't. And that's true also for knowledge workers, you know, so, uh, and some like the abstract thinking, some find it frustrating and probably, you know, yes, of course, there's probably some kind of segmentation that we could do. But on the other hand, I'm also, I always try to, until I have the data, be really open to the fact that I can't tell exactly how somebody wants to learn. It's more my job to understand the different needs across the board and make it possible to make that choice. Welcome to the Learnability Podcast, where it's our mission to explore the future of work and lifelong learning to accelerate professional and personal development. My name is Innocent Maginga. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the CEO of an edtech startup called Align. We've built a platform to help you validate your informal learning and achieve your objectives and learning needs in a community of peers and mentors on a similar journey. You can download and try out the app at alignbetter.com. That's Align spelled A-L-I-N-E better.com. So hello, Shani. Welcome to the Learnability Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. We have had and continuously have a, a lot of good conversation around everything around learning and development as, as um, both professionals and as ourselves. And in this conversation, we will try to understand um, your experience and your role as a learning and development professional. But I also believe there is is a lot to gain from people who are not in the field of learning and development, just understanding how we learn, how we develop and how we can use the workplace as well and, and spend that time for our growth. So I think this conversation can be very beneficial for everyone, anyone and everyone. I hope so. I certainly hope so. I'm really excited to be here. I'm thinking we can we can kick it off by understanding what you do. Uh, so exploring your current role and then sort of how you came into this position. Yeah, so I currently am uh, acting head of learning at a big telecommunications company in Sweden. And um, I think the way I came into it is um, to me, there's a red thread, maybe not to everyone else, but I think I'm I'm very much a people generalist. Um, that's really what drives me. I care about creating um, context for people to feel good and do good uh, in different ways. And so throughout my career, it's been the really a huge range of things from kind of performance management and culture to uh, more deeply into learning and development and leadership. I would say the big themes for me have always been culture and experience and growth uh, and really how growth is an engine for a lot of things, uh, even, even when we don't really realize it, but growth is always necessary. 
And I have this, uh, I did a, a huge analysis um, on, on employee experience in my job. And uh, one sentence really, really stuck with me that somebody said, I just want to be good at my job. Mm. And what does that really mean? Because right now it means maybe you are good at it, but if you want to be good over time, growth is a necessity. Um, And I think because your job will change, right? Yeah. And the context will change and you will change. Um, And so how you relate to that can be really different, but I find that context really, really interesting. Uh, And I, I think, yeah, that's what really drives me is, figuring out how we create cultures, experiences, context for people to, you know, be and feel good in the moment so that they can really contribute where they are and and feel like that's meaningful to them. Uh, So yeah, that's kind of my, my path and my red thread, I think. Yeah. I like that. And, And I think one of the reasons we, we always have such good conversations is because of this interdisciplinary approach. So um, in the professional context, we tend to place barriers around these different fields. So I'm working with culture, you're working with learning and development, you're working with HR. But at the end of the day, it's the combination of these different fields that creates this growth, creates the context. Yes, I love that. I think one of the things that I brought with me into my toolbox um, is a human centric approach to, to figuring out how you do those things. And in the human centric, you really have to put yourself in, in the shoes and in the perspective of who you're solving for, who, who it is that you're helping. And it's exactly what you're saying that I found that when I do that, I, I tend to see the silos that we want to deliver in and like all these expertise areas that of course are fantastic and needed. Uh, and what happens when I feel, because when we talk to people about their growth, usually it's not that straightforward. Like it, where does it start for somebody? It starts with this sentiment of maybe I'm feeling bored or I'm feeling stagnated or I'm feeling like something isn't right, like something isn't enough. It's not necessarily that easy to identify for somebody exactly what it is you need at that point in time. And it can be really different things. And that's where the interdisciplinary thing kind of comes into play because I mean, at some point it can just be growth for me for us to have a conversation and that can be good and inspiring and that can give me new energy. At another point, maybe I need some coaching from somebody or maybe I need to, you know, spread my wings and try something new or I want to expand into something, a new area. I want to try something that I haven't tried or take a responsibility that I haven't or I want to apply for a new job. And in a corporate space, all of those things I mentioned are different areas of expertise and delivered in different silos And so one of the big questions for me is always, how do we switch that around to really enable that comprehension, that conversation for people so they can navigate? What is my growth need right now? And that changes. Um, So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. But as you're saying, this interdisciplinary is definitely necessary if you want to help people navigate their need. You're sort of describing one um, form of of problem, these um, silos that are created, but you have such a wide array of experience and several years of experience within this field. So I wanted to ask you sort of what are some 
threads or some themes, some recurring themes that you've experienced throughout these years uh, in problems or or issues that uh, hinder this growth and development and as well the human-centric approach? Um, That's a really good question. I think one thing is the fact that I, I think we relate to learning differently in the corporate space and in the private space Mm. uh, and growth as, as a topic. And so there is a shift that's definitely going on right now where we're moving focus from, I went to a seminar and I did a course and checking that box into really exploring what is it that will help us shift our ability to do something or um, our skills or our behaviors into that, that we desire. Yes. Um, and so I think that's, for me, has been a big red thread in the past year is that shift in the trend that's going on and, and challenging that, uh, most of us, when we want to learn something in our spare time, we kind of go out and test things out and we look for resources. And then when it comes to the corporate space, all of a sudden we're kind of narrowing it down to, I didn't get to go to a seminar. I didn't get to take a course. Yes. But did you get to hop on a new project or, you know, did you get to meet inspiring people? Did you, were you pushed and challenged to try new perspectives and new things? And so I think one thing that is that widening of what does it mean to actually learn something and taking it from just this training moment into more the moment of application trial, really transferring things into practice. I would say that is a big, um, that's been a big theme, I think for me that I've observed in the past, in the past years, at least. Uh, that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and I, as you're saying, it's an ongoing process still. So you have the more progressive, uh, let's say, modern organizations who are on top of this and trying to implement this type of learning that really taps into uh, an innate curiosity in a different way. So not learning out of compliance necessarily, but learning out of that sense of growth. And I had a previous podcast guest, uh, Thomas Björkman, uh, and hearing you speak about this, uh, I wanted to run this by you. So he speaks about um, in one part, um, we're having the horizontal development. So this is a little bit more linear, it's learning new skills and competencies to perform, a little bit often uh, compliance orientated. And then you have the vertical development, which is the the, uh, traits that you spoke about, behaviors, learning about yourself, self-awareness, and these have been tended to be called more soft skills, but I don't like that segmentation as well. It's all skills that we could use. And we at the line, we call this uh, combining professional development with personal development. Is this sort of what we're seeing is becoming more relevant for organization or the realization that this is more relevant? Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think that um, that, that T-shaped development, right. Which is like both horizontal and vertical. Uh, yeah. And I think especially put in the context of the fact that the world is changing really fast and there's a vast amount of information to choose from, or that's being thrown at us at all times. And our context is constantly in, in, you know, kind of moving, like it's a lot of of moving pieces. And I, I definitely think that that requires from an individual 
a huge amount of self-awareness and self-leadership. And that's been also a theme in uh, where I am now is, is really helping people to tap into what are their values? What is their purpose? As you're saying, what's my intrinsic motivation? What is it that I really want to contribute with? How can I play with that within this space? And how can I develop those abilities really to benefit me also when I'm practicing my normal profession? How, how does that help me? So I definitely think both are extremely necessary. Uh, and it's for each to say what's the interplay with between those and the balance. Uh, but yes, definitely personal development um, is key. I mean, and, and even just looking at this pandemic period that we've been in where there was a huge and quick shift and there are lots of benefit for lots of people, but it was also really tough Um and it required a lot of reflection from a lot of people as to what's good for me. You know, how, how do I balance out my personal and professional? What is it that I need to be healthy, to collaborate, to, um, so I, I do think this world requires us to be reflective in a completely different way, which is also good for learning. So Exactly. Mean, and as you're speaking about this trend, this movement, this realization, um, maybe you could categorize it as organizations and leaders of organization are starting to see learning more as a need to have rather than a nice to have, which it's been historically maybe viewed as, oh, it's nice. We send people off to a conference. They have a good time. They come back with some energy. And then uh, a quarter of a year later, we do the same thing again. But really integrating the learning into the business development, business goals and, and, and objectives. Um, so I want to ask you, and I will use the category of L&D uh, right now, but you can take it in the wider context if you want. But I want to ask, has L&D as a field made the connection between uh, learning and development and business objectives and metrics? Uh, as of today? Um, I think that will differ based on organization. Um, that's at least my observation, that it's a yeah. little bit a question of maturity. Those that uh, you listen to that are really leaning into this are making the individual growth synonymous with the corporate growth. Like, if we want to grow as a company, we want to evolve. We need to make the same possible for the individuals who are doing the job. And it's really kind of how much you put into this. So I do see that, you know, there's a lot of uh, leaning into that space overall, I think in the field of like people functions or HR or whatever you want to, to call it uh, of really becoming more of a strategic partner and less of a satellite function. And I do, I do think that there, there is that piece of legacy for a lot of the, a lot of the people functions that makes, that puts it a little bit at a distance from kind of the commercial business or the, um, you know, the more customer facing space. And definitely that there is a huge shift in all of those areas to really become that partner in, and in being able to spell out, if this is your strategy, here's what you need to do for your people to make it possible. Um, and I think it will depend really a lot on which company you're in and kind of what strategy is being driven. But as a trend, yes, there is, I think, 
definitely more of that discussion. And um, I think, I mean, even just looking at the dialogues that are going on within the learning space of measuring learning impact rather than just kind of taking course attendance, I think that's definitely a trend that's kind of pointing and showing that direction that, you know, we want to be able to show how learning is changing our ability to do things. And I mean, that's kind of the holy grail. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but but I definitely think that's a testament of that trend of, of connecting the two to a greater extent. And I think there are you know, things that happen on both sides there, but it's it's that little adaptation also from, from the learning perspective of daring to put number or numbers on things and, and goals and measurements and, and being in that dialogue, that's not to say it's easy because it really isn't like human behavior isn't, isn't easy. <laughs> it's definitely a huge challenge. Uh, tie, tying the, we know there is a connection. Uh, many times it's indirect and it takes time to sort of uh, take advantage of the learning being done, but there is the connection to performance and then illustrating that in the, in the best way is a current challenge um, that I think we're facing. But speaking of trends, uh, let me ask you another question. What, what are your thoughts on the trend of the growing popularity of the role of the CLO, so the chief learning officer? Um, I mean, it always brings me to a question, like what do organizations put into that role? Uh, mm. You know, is it because the title can sound in a certain way, but it also is dependent on what the context is around it. Um, if I just listen to the role and think about, you know, that before it has been a lot of learning and development and now it's more learning. Uh, mm. I mean, these are kind of assumptions that I'm making based on what I'm hearing. Um, I do think that learning in a sense Mm, or what I observe is kind of, it can be a bit more technical in a way, mm. like in the development field, you often get all of the kind of talent management, performance management areas that are a bit more process driven in that sense of yearly cycles and um, kind of hygiene factors in a way. And then the learning piece is I want to say technical, both in an actual like digital sense of requiring a set of tools and an infrastructure, but also technical in a way that to understand how to really optimize learning in itself, because um, the way we, we do it now is like performance is more about this like daily guidance, like you're having your goals, you have clear vision, and then your learning is another area. I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit of a radical in, in different ways. Um, you know, what you call things is one thing, what you actually get to do within that scope is another. So I'm always yes. curious about that, of course. But I do think that learning in itself is a niche competence. Like there is something to be said for having somebody who understands the learning mind and this this train of actions from training to transferring it into sustaining knowledge and managing that in a, in a meaningful way, uh, which I definitely don't think is, is a general kind of area of knowledge for everyone. So yeah, I think it's good that it's represented, uh, whether it's a chief learning officer or not, it's all about the, the power that you give or the mandate that you give to that role either way. So 
Um, but yeah, I think it's a niche type of competence that does require like being a bit nerdy into that area and then having that understanding, you know, of, uh, really what, what that means. So yeah, yeah, it could be good, but again, it depends. It depends. (laughs) No, that's a very, it's a very good answer. Exactly. So, um, if you look at LinkedIn, you'll see all type of roles and there's popping up new roles all the time. But what I find interesting with this trend is that we're actually at the stage where it's relevant to bring learning into the C-suite. So you're actually bringing it, let's say, to the top of the the, the organization, depending on how, how hierarchical the organization is. But as we said, some for some organizations, that's just a title. Uh, and for some, I hope it's really getting the responsibility and getting the chance to um, influence all of the organization and all of the organizational activities with a learning and development uh, centric approach. I mean, I would, I would definitely hope so. Either way, it's, it's a signal, like it's, yes. it communicates something around the priorities. Then you never know what goes on inside. I find when you do talk to people around, I mean, I kind of work in two fields of experience and learning. And every time you talk to people who have similar titles, you realize how the scopes can really differ. Uh, and that, okay, this is how it works in your organization. This is how it works in mine. Uh, but symbolically, yes, it's a very powerful thing, I think, to have to have there, as you say, and like bring it into the C-suite where it actually gets a seat around the table and gets to have a perspective on, on running the business. That's fantastic. And sort of making a transition from speaking on an organizational level, going into the the, the, the part that I feel like you're mostly excited about the human centricness. So the, the, yes. the human aspect <laughs> in it and experience, but go transitioning into that. Um, how can we be human centric and data driven at the same time? And, and why do we need to be dr- data driven as well? Well, at least as far as I learned, you know, it's, it's really easy for us as people to rely on our opinion and our judgment of something. And As we all know, our perspective isn't necessarily actually the truth of the reality. Uh, It's how we see the truth of the reality in that moment from our experience, from our perspective, whatever we are bringing in our in our backpack that colors it. So uh, just answer that first question of what why is data important? It is because it requires us to listen. And I think they're a little bit one and the same. For me, the human centricness comes into comes down to, I mean, it's, you can make it as complex as you want in terms of, of methodology and all that, but it comes down to listening to people and, you know, really daring to put your own ideas, opinions, and ego aside and tapping into what is the reality of who you're helping. And I mean, the byproduct of that is often data, but I think the human centricity for me is a lot about you know, not skipping the step of understanding who you're helping. Yes. Um, as organizations, as people also, we tend to be really interested in optimizing the process, solving solving something, doing something. And really often we're like, oh, something is wrong and I'll try to fix it. And we don't take this moment to like take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, why is something going wrong? For who is it going wrong? What is it that we want to fix? What is the value that they actually need out of this? So for me, the human centricity is actually that step or that action of 
all the time centering and understanding who you're helping and making that the essential thing and making the impact the essential thing. I know I say to people, you know, you need to fall in love with the impact, not your solution. Fall in love with the impact that you want to generate and don't hold on to, because it's also really easy. You know, we spend all this time on generating solutions that we think are fantastic. And then we put them in the face of somebody else. And when people start interacting with it, it's not working as we want. And then we hold on to the solution. We're like, oh, but we put so much time into this and we did this and that, and people just don't understand. And of course, you know, new things require change management efforts, you're like helping people understand and that, but it's also, you know, let's just dare to listen in that moment. What isn't working and dare to observe? How are people behaving with what we've created? And how, what are we, what do we get to let go of here to make it more impactful for them? So I'm always like, for me, this is my like personal definition is really about listening and falling in love with the impact that you want to create for people. And when you center that, you become really, really flexible in terms of how you produce a solution, because then what matters is you deliver the value. It doesn't matter that you thought of something and it worked or didn't work. It can. I mean, lots. we'll have lots of ideas and some will be fantastic. I read this book about creativity a long time ago and it says, you know, innovative people, they aren't innovative because they had a hundred good ideas. They're innovative because they had a thousand ideas and a hundred of them were good. Mm. And it's a little bit that like daring to say, okay, that one wasn't good. What's the next, like, how are we iterating how are we daring to use the feedback use the interaction with people to shape something that gives them value so that's really my like the simple <laughs> explanation is really that of and i think data for me is the byproduct is being really observant on when is this my opinion mm. and or do i actually have a clear understanding did i actually ask somebody uh, that's been a question of mine for years in every meeting. You come in and people are saying, we need this and this and that. And my question is always, have you talked to this group of coworkers? Do you know that this is actually what they want and need? Well, we think it is. Well, is that enough? So your opinion is enough? We tend to create a lot of steps between us and the user all the time. So it's all about reducing that and getting data in your hands, understanding insights, you know, into what is actually working. So yeah, those for me are, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Brilliant. It makes a whole lot of sense. And it, for me, it reflects once again, this movement um, getting towards personalization, so more personalization of the different initiatives we launch to support, but also with an added level of accuracy. And as I'm getting it, uh, sort of the field of learning and development or how we've worked with corporate training or, or learning within organizations have been very sort of, okay, Let's buy in this whatever uh, learning management system or one platform that can handle content. And then we decide this is the content to be um, learned and distributed. And then we push it down, um, down the employees without sort of understanding the specific needs, the context, the, the combination of the personal and the professional development. So yeah, this human centric and data-driven approach 
um, I believe is also if you're going to do it at scale uh, is the way to go, at least as uh, far as we know right now. Yeah. And I think part of that is, I mean, I don't know, there is this classic uh, design thinking image. I don't know if you've probably seen it where usually it's an image of like a park or a huge grass area where they've also made sidewalks. And then you can see Uh. that people have walked up paths in different places, which are like shortcuts or something that makes it easier for them. And I think for me, the human centric and the design thinking or whatever, however you want to frame it is a lot about that is being an observance of where are people actually going? And rather than forcing them onto the path that we thought, how are we paving the path that they're walking on and making that a really easy one for them to take? And especially in this like age of technology that we're in and the, the fast pace that that's moving, and in particular in the corporate space, I think in the same way as for the customer experience, you don't just compete with whoever is your direct competitor. You compete with any experience in any shop, in any digital interface. And it's the same with the employees. I mean, it's not like employees, we as employees, we don't use other apps on our phone that have AI solutions behind them. Everyone does, we all do. And that's where our expectations lie. And so I definitely think that's a big challenge within the corporate space because there is a lot of administration that needs to exist, of course, and, you know, guarding of people's data and a lot of kind of really hygiene factor things that need to be in place. And then there's the experience that mm. we want to facilitate. And that's a different question. And I think there's definitely a um, a little bit of a struggle there between those two things of how do you kind of keep all the things that you need from a very administrative point of view and also create that kind of forward-leaning sentiment and experience with paving the path that people are walking on. Just um, because generally, you know, if people start using something and they like it, the likelihood of you making them use something that has less functionality is really small. Why would I trade a solution that works really well for me for something that doesn't provide me with the same benefits? So um, a lot of the discussions that I have are more about, you know, I've, I've had discussions where, well, here's a tool that we probably shouldn't be using. Okay. I said, well, you know, the tool is irrelevant. If we understand why people are using the tool, then it's easier to replace it. So <laughs> figure out why, and then you can replace the solution. But if you don't know why, then you're probably going to create another problem elsewhere. If you're just pulling the rug and removing things from people, then they're going to find another solution that fits them better. So the listening for me is also in that actually risk reducing in a sense from a very like business point of view is, you know, that's about being able to understand how I will maximize my investment and my engagement in certain solutions, whether it's a process or a platform or whatever it might be. Uh, One of my like things that I've been preaching in relation to particularly digital solution has been, you know, any solutions we're not using are really expensive. doesn't matter how cheap you got them. Like if (laughs) nobody's engaging with them, it's expensive. Um, it's a cost in, in, in another solution you could have in that people could use as well. Yeah. And it's a cost and sentiment for people also, because it's also this, well, this isn't something that engages me. So it's also how people feel about what's provided to them. So it's, you know, apart from the monetary cost, there's also this cost of 
how we actually experience things as people, um, which is also not, you know, not something that um, we desire. And I like that you've been tying it back to performance. And then I'll get back with the question around performance. So more of a side note question, Yeah. <clears throat> but also what you said uh, in the beginning. So the, the goal of, I want to be the best at my job or I want to be uh, um, as good as I can. And assuming that this is what people want, one of their objectives, and then combining this with, with other objectives and then providing the right tools and the right context to actually perform at their best. But mm -hmm. I want to, continue into speaking more and more about us as workers, as individuals that create the organization or that the organization is built up of. Um, and I want to start by a little bit zoomed out. How do you relate to the term knowledge worker? Yeah, you know, it was funny because you sent you sent me some questions ahead of this and I had to Google that. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was actually curious, like how, and I did Google it, but I'm yeah, curious yeah. how you define it. Yes. Oh, good. Good. Flip it around. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, <clears throat> the most simple definition, almost like foolishly simple is uh, people like us who sit behind a computer all day. We're most likely knowledge workers. Uh, but a more technical definition would be where not when knowledge is your main capital and how you get things done in work, that would define you as a knowledge worker. So gathering of information, distributing or applying information, distributing information. So working a lot with information and data and turning this into actual knowledge and long term wisdom. That is the role of a knowledge worker, I would say, or definition of a knowledge worker. Yeah. Um, I think that that's a huge chunk of people who work in the corporate it space is. today. Yes. Um, and that's sort of why I wanted to bring this question in. Sorry for interrupting, but hmm. it is one third of the working age population, one billion uh, people globally. And what I find very interesting is that we don't realize that we are like you had to Google it. And a lot of people are shocked. Like we speak with investors and they're like, hmm, what's the knowledge worker? And then you say like digital skills worker. And they're like, yes, I, I understand that. Uh, so whatever you call it um, doesn't matter. But just the realization of, OK, one third of the world's working age population are knowledge workers in comparison to previous fields. What do they need? So the reason I wanted to raise this question is I believe with the realization of, okay, we're knowledge workers, we might have different needs and different, um, it's a different context, uh, basically. Yeah, it is. Um, I think um, this is a bit of a tricky question in one way, because in one sense, and and all that I read, I find that the more I read about learning, the less I think we know how to learn as people. We don't learn how to learn properly. We don't learn how to tap into our brain, our potential uh, in a very meaningful way. Uh, a lot of us, like it's something that we pick up as we get interested in it and we kind of dig into the neuroscience and, and all of those things and, and try to understand. So overall, there's that 
everyone it doesn't matter if you're a knowledge worker just learning how to learn things yes. uh yes. is is a big thing i think and it maybe becomes really prevalent in that type of role because it's often quite abstract the things that we do um it's not very clear it doesn't have a clear uh end or beginning it doesn't have you know the context is is a moving target yes yes um, you're having to yeah. invent processes uh, as you go and i Less mean it's binary, definitely more dynamic yes very not binary so on the one hand yeah if if we generalize for sure i think that at least if i even just think back to myself i I've, and the team that i have now i've tried to make it more about not necessarily always being about looking for the exact things that make sense to your job because you don't know where you're going to find the best connections um, or the best learning. Sometimes it's in a wildly different field, a principle somewhere that's like, wow, it's like, why didn't we use this? I know at least a few years ago, I can't say for sure now, but I know in Israel, for example, if you're studying a program, uh, whether it's, you know, if you're into the arts or if you're doing medicine or if you're doing something else, you have to do within that program one semester of a diametrically different topic that isn't that, which is fantastic because it's, I mean, good for our brain and it's good for our learning and it expands our way of seeing the world. And so I definitely think that that's something that needs to be learned for that field of people. And on the other hand, who am I to say that if you're working in a store or if you're not a knowledge worker, that that's not the way that you need to learn also. So I'm also like, I have those two like cups. Of course, if we look at the data, if we look at the people who are there and what they might need, for sure, it's it's probably widening the scope of what it means to learn and like more about learning to reflect and extract insight and extract principles from different areas and get inspired and um, and and do those kinds of things. And what do I know? Like somebody else working in another field in another way can still need those things because they're human. So um, I, I do think in one way, I want to say, yeah, I mean, we can speculate as to that. And we're both knowledge workers. We know a lot of people who are knowledge workers. It's easy to project ourselves into those shoes and, and think and kind of get an idea together. Uh, and on the other hand, I've spent a lot of time speaking to people in different fields who, who, you know, work in service or work in retail. And I think the beauty that I learn is that, you know, underneath it all, we're all people and we all want to feel important and we all want to have chances to grow and we all want to be heard and seen and, and some are more triggered by super clear goals and others aren't. And that's true also for knowledge workers, you know, so, uh, and some like the abstract thinking, some find it frustrating and probably, you know, yes, of course, there's probably some kind of segmentation that we could do. But on the other hand, I'm also, I always try to, until I have the data, be really open to the fact that I can't tell exactly how somebody wants to learn. It's more my job to understand the different needs across the board and make it possible to make that choice. I, I agree. I do think that uh, uh, learning or the learning needs are universal. So we all need to learn and grow. 
Um, and within different fields and to different degrees, or, or we are differently driven, um, and and the dependencies on learning is maybe what I was getting at. Where mm. with knowledge workers, it's it's as we we're speaking about previously, from the need uh, nice to have to need to have, it's really on a different level uh, potentially uh, a need to have. And and I really like what you said as well about. Um, the interdisciplinary approach to learning as well. And if you got into learning science or learning about learning, you would probably learn about knowledge transfer and the great opportunity, picking up something from a completely different field or just a different story, just hearing a story about uh, how someone solved something or, or someone's life, and then translating that to be able to apply it in the context you're working in right now. I believe that's a huge one. And that's also why I'm a big fan of a uh, interdisciplinary approach to learning. Yeah, I, I I like that too. I do think, I mean, generally similar people also are drawn to similar types of work. Like if you, you if you work strategically, you're likely to be a person who likes abstract thinking. And mm. so, you know, that will um, result in other things, but it's also about how we view our job you know, to what extent, because, you know, some people have a job for their paycheck and then outside of it, they do a whole lot of other things. So it's like, I find that's the tricky part of working with the human experience is that we need to be able to somehow segment and understand and group together at the Mm. same time as we need to be able to personalize to exactly every individual. (laughs) So it's a, it's a big scale to be working on, but I mean, thank God for technology. I guess that's definitely (laughs) a piece that helps out in that, in that way is that at least, you know, we can use the insights to understand different groups or like different types of majorities that exist and then, and kind of do it from there. So, yeah, but it's always those two balancing, like, grouping and really personal, uh, which is, yeah, I, I don't know that I've found the, the silver bullet here, but, <laughs> but it is a challenge. One, one thing that, um, we believe could help there is when you do the grouping, yes, facilitation is, is brilliant, but also the, the learning from each other. So it's, you don't always have to be involved or in control. A lot of the learning happens sort of peer to peer as well. And on that theme and, and on the theme of different ways of learning, you speak a lot about um, convergence. Hmm. And I would like for you, if you could describe um, the difference or the processes of uh, divergence and convergence and how this comes into and creating great experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think so. There are probably lots of contexts that you can speak about divergence and convergence, but where I usually do it is is speaking about, you know, creativity and creation in different ways. And I mean, don't quote me on all this, but how I understand it, how I interpret this is, you know, that to creation is there is always a divergence and a convergent phase. And the divergence is a lot about opening ourselves up to possibility, uh, to like imagining something big to play really. I mean, that's how we play as adults. We like play around with scenarios. Um, and we kind of imagine what it would be if there were no limitations and what would you do? And, um, we really go into like 
expanding our minds often in a like risk-free environment, like nothing is happening. Everything is just here in this thought experiment. And we kind of add in inspiration and we collect that and we interact with what happens. Like we, we try to project ourselves into different scenarios of, okay, if I do this, this could happen, that could happen. Um, so. And some people as well have easier to do this and some find this more challenging and it is, it is something that could be good to practice as well. Yes, for sure. I was just listening yesterday to a podcast on that, the Huberman Lab one on, on play. Um, yes. And he was talking about that exactly, how we can practice play. So anyone who wants to learn more about that, Huberman Lab is a really My good, a good resource. Right yeah, yes. fantastic one. Um, but yeah, I think it is is more or less available to us. And there are also more or less techniques to do it. But I do think it's more about not limiting yourself at that point. That's mm. the listening phase and the kind of, um, you know, you listen, you collect information, you play with what happens. Okay. So this is what we heard that mean. And then the convergent phase is about defining and creating focus and kind of conceptualizing something. Um, because often, you know, in creation, we have loads of ideas, you know, it's all floating around and then at some point, you know, and ideas are fantastic. And, and then do we want to do something with, sometimes we don't, sometimes it's really nice to just be in play and, and have ideas and, and, and be in that. And then if we are in the space of actually wanting to add value or do something, then the convergent phase is really what helps us get the points to meet, like finding the patterns, um, getting to the core of things, finding focus for what it is that we want to create. Um, and, you know, so there are loads of different ways. I know in, in human centric design and design thinking, there's one model that's, for example, double diamond. And then Please what you do share is share more about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what you do is like the first phase is about that listening and then there's the definition. So then you have one diamond. You kind of go out and collect uh -huh. your input. You define what it is you want. You define your problem, the thing that you want to solve. And then you open up to start creating the solution. So that, again, becomes like a creative phase. Um, and then you launch it. So then you have to actually decide, okay, these are the things and you launch. In reality, you know, nothing is that linear. I mean, you would know also everything is kind of looping around. You collect input, you get insight all the time and feedback from people. But I think for just the understanding of the process, that it's it's a good model just to kind of, um, yeah, just get the overview of, of how you can relate to it. It's definitely helpful. I, I learned another analogy listening to another podcast, which I really, really liked. She talked about, the inhale and the exhale of a project. And that's really, so the inhale is the divergent phase. That's where you like, you know, go in for air, you kind of, okay, taking in all your input. Like when you were writing a thesis at uni and you're like reading all the books and you're doing all the things and you're playing with all this. And then at some point you're like, okay, I need to put a cap on this. Like I need to let things settle. I need to draw some conclusions from this. And that's when you exhale. Mm. And you kind of, okay, now we're settling in and that's the convergent phase of, you know, really bringing things together and concluding. Um, so I yeah. like both these analogies with the diamonds and, yeah. and the inhale and exhale. 
Yeah, you can feel it. I've used both as like, but the inhale and exhale are quite good in a very like intimate setting with people when, you know, if you coach somebody and you can feel that they're, and I need to do this and that and that. And like at some, I've had points where I say, okay, I think it's time for the exhale now. Let's put a cap on, you know, how much more input you take. Let's just rest here. What are the conclusions? We can inhale again if we need, but, <laughs> you know, um, so those are two really good ones, I think, in terms of, of divergence and convergence. And early in this conversation, you spoke about, I believe it was uh, describing uh, the, the, the genius process, that it's not the hundred ideas that we see. It's actually the thousand ideas and getting to those thousand ideas takes a lot of ideating and just throwing things out there and then eventually the world will see or experience the hundred uh, of ideas exactly yeah it's it's a narrowing down and that's a good opportunity for me to throw in i, I said i had a, a somewhat random or side note uh, question so this is one yeah, of my thousand ideas that i want to test uh -huh. with you yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on a tagline or just the other day, I think the day before yesterday, I thought of a tagline. I was listening to, uh, a I was both reading a book um, about sort of meaning creation in, in the world and in these times and how we make sense and meaning. Also listening, I believe, to a learning and development podcast. In some way, how ideas happen. Pick them from different fields. Yeah. So this is the tagline. I want to run it past you and see how it lands. So mm -hmm. the tagline is in pursuit of purpose and performance. Okay. And this is in the context of? This is in the context of either Align as a platform, a, a learning experience platform, or potentially learnability as a, a podcast exploring mm -hmm. okay. uh, our ability and desire to learn, grow and adapt. Yeah. Um, I say, okay, so let this land for me. Purpose is a word that I really like. I think we all, I mean, any, if you go into positive psychology, even like any neurobiology, like anything that, that you listen to, it's, it's a lot about having meaning as a person. We want to feel like, you know, we do something that adds, um, this is a highly personal comment from me. I think performance yes, is slightly charged word for me uh, in the sense that, and at least for me, having worked a long time in the corporate space where I think, you know, there's still a lot that needs to happen in terms of how we view the human in the corporation and that we view the human a little bit as a production unit that should mm -hmm. be performing evenly all the time. Um, so I know I've a lot tried to talk more about contribution mm. and optimal contribution than performance then of course, you know, there is this biological sense of perform, like what's the maximum we can get in terms of output from our bodies and our minds. And you can, of course, call that performance. So I think it's more of a philosophical question for me, um, whether we talk about performance in that setting of learning and being a person with other people, is it more important for me to perform or is it more important for me to contribute um, and if I look at the settings that I'm in, like, I'm not interested in people performing for me. I'm interested in how can we help each other 
you know, use what we have to contribute to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Then I also realized it's all, that's why I asked about the context, like context is important with words. Yes. And, and it's also important depending on who you're talking to, of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear and it makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I would say, again, it's very personal for me, my relationship to that word of performance has a charge. Um, yeah, just because of that, because it sometimes it makes me feel like it makes us look at people as machines. Yes. Uh, this is it's a brilliant reflection and I'm so happy I actually brought this question up because this is the exact type of reflection uh, or, <laughs> or, or uh, yeah, reflecting hours after. So, um, I also really like the word word purpose. I have been actually using fulfillment more mm. in the context. So in pursuit yes. of fulfillment. So, but I think purpose fills a similar role. I really do like contribution and I've been using that more and I'm just getting into performance and I'm trying to frame it or my thinking is, can you perform? So if one of my objectives is being a good colleague or a good listener or a, yeah, it doesn't, we do tend to tie performance to, let's say, athletic performance or academic performance or work-wise performance. But I believe we can um, perform means showing up and doing maybe what we intended to do. So performing mm. at our best. And what we intend to do is highly personal. Yeah. Um, but I do get the, the association with more... Yeah. And that's why I'm saying it depends on the context that you draw around it. Um, so it can, it can be a lot of things. And I also realized that contribution is a lot more abstract and it's maybe also because I'm, I'm a person who likes abstract things. Otherwise I wouldn't work with what I do, but, um, <laughs> but I, I also agree with you that fulfillment is a nice word. I had, um, I was listening to somebody who made that definition. It was really nice because I think in the space where I work, you know, there's a lot of talk about engagement and getting, you know, tapping into people's intrinsic motivation and those drivers and, and, you know, making people feel engaged where they are. And here they were talking about fulfillment instead as a steadier metric of actually, you know, how good somebody feels and into fulfillment, they put, um, how good relationships I can have within the space of my professional life, um, how much impact I can have on what I do and my contribution. And what was the third one that I just lost? Uh, it was. I'm, I'm wondering if it's growth. Yes. Of course it it's growth. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did I lose that? Like the that whole topic be, yeah. of this. Yes. <laughs> that makes sense. I, I, I see it's where they're growth. going with this. But I think that those three ones are really, um, I think they provide quite a holistic picture of, I mean, at least in the analysis that I've been engaged with, with people, if you look at the core drivers, um, the core is actually, you know, not being alone, having a context of people around you that you feel supported, that you have like a partner in crime yes. and then a chance to grow and a chance to mean something and have impact, which kind of matches. I mean, obviously goes entirely hand in hand with loads of research out there. Um, 
self-determination theory, for example, um, mm. that, you know, claims autonomy, mastery, purpose or relatedness. I think there are different uh, terminologies that go into that. But definitely like fulfillment, I think, is is also a good, good word, uh, depending on what you put into it again. But mm-hmm. um, I, I like that one, too. I'll keep playing with the, this tagline and yeah. see, see where we land. <laughs> and Shani, this has been a brilliant conversation and we can always go on for hours, it feels like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, of course, want to uh, not take too much of your time. So I want to ask you, and you can spend how much time you want on this question. Uh, so learning and development, learning is a big part for you and you have this interdisciplinary approach. You've had a very exciting, brilliant journey, but looking forward or currently, what are you mostly excited about learning? So for the future, what are you getting into? What are you looking at? Mm, good question. Uh, on a very personal level, I've been having a, a topic that comes up a lot around creating habits. Yes. Um, and I think it actually plays into both of both work and, and myself, of course, because as a person, I'm always looking to understand which habits, you know, benefit me and and help me be a better person, better mom, better manager, whatever. Um, but also I think the topic of habits is really interesting in terms of a lot of the behavioral shifts that are required for people to do also within within the space of working as leaders, as professionals, a lot of the things that we do when implementing new knowledge is actually about rewiring the way we do something. And in a way it's about building new habits. Yes. Um, and, and doing something in a different way than we've been doing before. So um, yeah, on a very granular level, that topic specifically interests me a lot right now because I think it plays into both areas of how do we actually help people create new habits? It's easy to be inspired, you know, taking a course or listening to a podcast, but it's how do we guide that process of what does that mean that I get to do with this knowledge and how do we help people with this process of transferring that into a a practical reality of like, here's how I act now because I learned this. Um, I think that one, and that's the Holy grail right now for a lot of companies and people. And I, even Mm. now just this morning, I was looking at LinkedIn and somebody was posting around, they were happy to see this transfer dialogue where, okay, what is it that we need to be able to support people in moving knowledge into practice? Um, yeah. And and then I think, you know, habits is definitely, I think there's goal to, to collect there in terms of understanding how we can do that the best. And it's also, of course, you know, how do we get managers to support that in different ways or different opportunities to match that. So, you know, as we all know, sometimes we go, we learn something and then we step into our normal reality and nothing changes because nobody else changed, (laughs) you know? So it's also about, that how would you set up the context where there's somebody who supports it, a structure, a person, you know, everything makes it possible. So, yeah, I think that's one big thing that I'm curious about right now. How do you shape an experience around that? That's a fantastic one. I've been sitting here smiling because that's a topic that I've also been very into, let's say the, the past half year and really like the, the insights of working with learning and development or education, however you want to do view it, learning. It's really, or my insight is, is really about behavioral design. Mm. 
So shaping and creating the the behaviors of learning or that makes you a learning individual, a curious Mm. individual. And I can recommend um, BJ Fogg. He has written a book. His, uh, he works. He runs the, um, let's see, behavioral design lab at Stanford University, and he's written a book called Tiny Habits. Brilliant book, and this helped me develop the ideas of of behaviors, sort of being an umbrella, and under that containing habits. So behaviors are built off of habits, and habits are sort of repeated actions. And then yeah. the question becomes, which habits can you set up intentionally? Which unintentional habits can you identify and maybe tweak to, to be more intentional the way you would like to perform or the behavior you would like to have? And I believe this is a huge challenge, a huge, huge field. Um, you can spend a lot of time working on this. Yeah, it's definitely a huge field. I think one question that sits with me always, I'm a lot about questions, um, is do you want to steer something or do you want to enable it? Mm. I think I always want to go in the direction of enabling Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it births really different solutions than steering. Steering is a lot more about control and there can be areas where you need control for legal reasons for But for most of the things that are in the field of learning, it's more about enabling, enabling discussion, enabling reflection, enabling insight, somebody to reach their own conclusions and insight, helping them, uh, but not forcing, (laughs) enabling. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very fine line, I think, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one to explore. So uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. Yeah, it is. And, and you, you nailed it at the beginning there, questions. So, so the, I believe the best way to do this, if you want to um, stimulate, so let's say you're trying to help someone identify their um, goals in life or objectives or whatever learning needs they might have. Uh, you could sit down, look at their past and then decide, okay, I think this is a good way for you. But rather, if you could just ask good questions to have them reflect and, and have sort of the answers come up, And and then also questioning that later on and reflecting Mm. again. So yeah, questions is a big, big driver, I believe. Yeah, questions and probably also desire to to actually grow. Yeah. I think there are contexts that pull the desire out of people to to make that effort. And that's that's a whole other podcast, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think that's really interesting also is there's so many things. And I think just playing back to what we were talking about earlier around insight and analytics is that the people, I've, I've had a lot of discussions with people around this. It's very it's very difficult to see the exact cause and effect, which makes it sometimes difficult with human areas to actually calculate benefits or wins or things, because we can say that people who went through X program or did this thing, they were this much happier at the end. But then what are other things that happened to them during that time? They changed Mm. managers, they changed jobs. Like there are so many other factors. Did they move house? Did they, you know, there are so many things that can impact us. So it can also be really challenging to isolate, uh, which, which is why I think a lot of companies are going to the behavioral level 
because mm. you can't really isolate the factors that impact, but you can see if somebody became better at coaching or not, if, if yes. you collect feedback around it. Like, so yeah, the behavioral and habitual level is, uh, yeah, I think, um, one to, to tap into. Brilliant. Let's explore this together then. Yes. And, and finally, Shani, I'll, I'll, I'll let you off. Um, do you want to share any, you mentioned the Huberman Lab podcast, which we both listen to. Do you mm. want to mention or send our listeners off with any resource, any books, your, your favorite book or podcast? Oh, I'm a very, you know, I'm a very interdisciplinary reader. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a wide for range. being interdisciplinary? <laughs> <laughs> Is there one? No, I think I have a pretty wide range of things. Uh, I would say one podcast that I listen to and appreciate is uh, Creative Confidence. That's uh, yes. maybe throw that in here in terms of just the human centric and um kind of uh, design thinking approach it's uh made and hosted by IDEO who are you know kind of one of of the firms that have been in the front lines of developing this type of methodology and um, they always bring in uh, interesting people perspectives they also talk a lot about you know these uh, things of questions um and how you can facilitate divergent and convergent different activities. So yeah, I would throw that in here um, just as a, as a little extra, extra flavor. Great. Creative I'll confidence. add that to my subscription list as well. <laughs> Thank you very much for a great conversation. Um, Thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. It's been great learning from you and uh, hopefully I could have you back on the podcast sometime in the future. For sure. You've been listening to the Learnability Podcast, which is produced by Align. It's our mission to create equitable learning opportunities for all. So if you find this episode helpful, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can download and try out the Align app at alignbetter.com. That's align spelled A L I N E better dot com.